section thirteen of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain dickens later heroines david copperfield was a shapelier book than any that dickens had yet written or for that matter than any he was yet to write though hard times a tale of two cities and great expectations all had more form than his other novels in fact he seems to have done most of his best in david copperfield and least of his worst he set himself to represent life as the hero lived it and witnessed it and the terms of his intention were such that he could not always stray very wide of it in spite of his gothic tendency to grotesque and monstrous decoration he did something primarily structural for once and though certain parts of the work were overlaid with adventitious and impertinent episodes it was not weakened by them it comes together in the retrospect it does not straggle about or tumble apart one can almost recall it as a whole the characters obey the law of the comprehensive yet coherent story and have an uncommon logic and unity there are sometimes of course personifications of this or that quality this or that propensity but very often they are persons and very real persons one dora spenlow is as little dependent upon any mechanical means for recognition as much more important conceptions of dickens's though when it comes to importance i do not know why she should not be considered important if in art the question is not of what the thing is but how the thing is done perhaps the natural exuberance of dickens is less unnatural in the affair of young love than it is in other matters and certainly it is less offensive one is willing to stand it though always with the doubt whether a sense of the rapture and the bliss could not have been as perfectly imparted in saner terms still it is all very sweet and essentially it is all very true the identity of dora is admirably preserved with comparatively little insistence upon the trick of her she is kept vividly present and she is herself quite to the end to be sure there is a measure of make-believe required you are expected to suppose that a human creature capable of being taught polite accomplishments of playing a part in society and of imagining self-devotion in love and marriage can be otherwise rather less than a child but women are of all impossible kinds and perhaps dora is of as possible a sort as some others the charm of her does not cease with courtship after her marriage she is more intoxicating to the reader at least than before and though one may have known her for forty years it is nearer fifty years in a certain case the charm does not stale the tragic comedy of their young housekeeping is as funny as ever and the comi tragedy of david's attempts to turn dora to any serious account as sad the humour of it all is very lovely but is so pervasive and so diffused in the story that it can scarcely be detached for proof in a separate passage and i think that the following passage is merely as well as another it presents the scene between david 
and dora when after his aunt has lost her money he goes to tell her and release her if she wishes from her engagement dora came to the drawing-room door to meet me and jip came scrambling out tumbling over his own growls under the impression that i was a bandit and we all three went in as happy and loving as could be i soon carried desolation into the bosom of our joys not that i meant to do it but that i was so full of the subject by asking dora without the smallest preparation if she could love a beggar my pretty little startled dora her only association with the word was a yellow face and a nightcap or a pair of crutches or a wooden leg or a dog with a decanter stand in his mouth or something of that kind and she stared at me with the most delightful wonder how can you ask me anything so foolish pouted dora love a beggar dora my own dearest said i i am a beggar how can you be such a silly thing replied dora slapping my hand as to sit there telling such stories i'll make jip bite you i declare i'll make jip bite you said dora shaking her curls if you are so ridiculous but i looked so serious that dora left off shaking her curls and laid her trembling little hand upon my shoulder and first looked scared and anxious and then began to cry then i told her with my arms clasped round her how i loved her so dearly and so dearly how i felt it right to offer to release her from her engagement because now i was poor is your heart mine still dear dora said i rapturously for i knew by her clinging to me that it was oh yes cried dora oh yes it's all yours oh don't be dreadful i dreadful to dora don't talk about being poor and working hard said dora nestling closer to me i drew a picture of our frugal home made independent by my labour sketching in the little house i had seen at highgate and my aunt in her room upstairs i'm not dreadful now dora said i tenderly oh no no cried dora but i hope your aunt will keep her own room a good deal and i hope she's not a scolding old thing my love no perseverance and strength of character will enable us to bear much worse things but i haven't got any strength at all said dora shaking her curls have i jip oh do kiss jip and be agreeable it was impossible to resist kissing jip when she held him up to me for that purpose putting her own bright rosy little mouth into kissing form as she directed the operation which she insisted should be performed symmetrically on the centre of his nose i did as she bade me rewarding myself afterwards for my obedience and she charmed me out of my graver character for i don't know how long but dora my beloved said i at last resuming it i was going to mention something if you will sometimes think not despondingly you know far from that but if you will sometimes think just to encourage yourself that you are engaged to a poor man 
don't don't pray don't cried dora it's so very dreadful all this is very pretty and very winning but one is aware as one reads of joining in the make-believe one knows that given these very characters in that very situation it would not have happened just so though if it had happened so upon the stage it would have been delightful and would have seemed very lifelike two when it is a question of little emily and her betrayal in the same story or of agnes wickfield and her long tacit love for david the affair is still further from nature the part which each of these is forced to play limits her to the expression of a single intention of the author without regard to the complexity of motive the contrariety of action recognizable in every human being it is happily not possible that a girl like agnes however good and high shall patiently see the man she loves give himself to another woman and live in tender sisterly friendship with the wife till she dies and then inherit the husband with the confession that she has always loved him this is not only impossible but love being the simple selfish honest thing it is the pretence is odious and even repulsive neither is it credible that a girl like emily all humility all sincerity all unselfishness shall become the prey of her pure love for her seducer without some alloy of vanity of duplicity of self-love in her it cannot happen and never did happen since woman began to stoop to folly to have made agnes and emily without the defects of their qualities is to have made them half-natures half-persons and aesthetically altogether inferior to such whole-natures whole-persons as dora and as rosa dartle there is more truth there is more true art in rosa's outburst of furious and revengeful hate against emily because she has loved steerforth than in all the long-drawn tragedy of emily's betrayal rosa dartle is the second of the deadly hardy heroines whom dickens first discovered or invented in edith dombey and whom he elaborated to the last degree in lady dedlock who is more than any one else the heroine of bleak house she is a tremendously effective figure as she is seen against the background of her mysterious past with the shadow of a guilty love dimly present in it and in the foreground the offspring of that love the journalizing esther summerson forever gelatinously quivering on the verge of discovering her secret but withheld by her mother's pride and shame till the curtain is rung down you abandon yourself to the luxury of the illusion the transport of the make-believe but when you have got on your rubbers and overcoat and found your umbrella and the ushers are beginning to flap the seats up and to look for missing articles on the floor lady dedlock has already ceased to convince and you are aware of her washing the paint off in the dressing-room there is vastly more reality in mrs lou bounderby in hard times but the probabilities are in favour of her going off with james harthouse 
rather than of her taking refuge in her father's house from both her husband and her lover in this novel as in all the fiction of its author the means of any effect to be accomplished are so far beyond the requisite that one is inclined to ask with the irishman challenged to astonishment at the prodigious fall of water at niagara what's to hinder it there is a glut of material ethical emotional economic and political in hard times of which the moral that you must not leave fancy and affection out of life enforces itself by the mere statement and the wonder would be that anything less happens than could possibly happen yet in spite of this plethora the book has more affinity with the actual world than most other novels of dickens he bears on he rubs in here as always as everywhere he never could hold his hand and we of the generation who adored him must have been thick-skinned and coarse-fibred beyond all present imagination not to have felt it a heavy affliction we did not feel it such every repeated pressure lulled and delighted us and there was no make-believe too frantically impossible for us to join in in a tale of two cities where lucy manette passes for the heroine we worshipfully accepted the atrocious and abominable notion of sidney carton seeking to be guillotined in place of the husband of the woman he loves in great expectations we eagerly agreed to the proposition of a woman defeated of marriage and keeping all her life long her bridal room in the decaying appointments of her wedding day who against her own will perverted and poisoned the nature of her adopted daughter but not so finely that estella who passes for the heroine of the story does not give herself in true love to the boyish lover of her childhood it would be injustice as gross as these ridiculous fables to pretend that they were all or more than the beginning or a very small part of either story the sorcery which wrought the preposterous ends was of such a force somehow that a world lived by it in every book not the world of men and women we know but a world of characteristics of propensities of purposes singly impersonated and acted to a single end and in all these and around them was accumulated such vast wealth of action and situation that to refuse it was to leave oneself poorer than one could well afford to be probably so long as any fiction can last that of dickens will remain a monument of the contemporary excess alike in author and in reader it will stand like some vast fantastic structure left aside by the course of art and visited by the curious student of our century with amaze for the age that could have found it beautiful but not without a certain awe for the mighty talent which reared it with such unbridled strength in obedience to the forces animating the long revolt of romanticism against the classical conventions the revolution must waste with fire and sword but its works are not the patterns and the examples of after-time there will always be the things done in the serene veracity which is the sole law of beauty and lord of all moods and times we need not totally condemn the mistaken achievements of a false taste 
in an age of debauched ideals and the criticism of dickens which denied him great power and great deed in fiction would be more dishonest than his worst faking but in his fiction there is never the open air never the light of day always the air of the theatre always the light of the lamps it is not to be supposed that he knew this or that he wittingly wrought to the effect he produced but the convention of his fiction was really the man himself it was the make-believe by which as an artist he lived in its glamour he was learning to the last to do his sort of things better and better to fasten the theatre more firmly in tragedy melodrama comedy and broad farce around the spectator and to make him share his own illusion that it was life i have spoken of a tale of two cities and great expectations before little dorrit but they followed in order of time that far more characteristic romance and they were followed by our mutual friend in which dickens was still more himself again their heroines were sufficiently unconvincing as to their womanhood but they were not so entirely so angelically sexless as little dorrit in the long elaboration of whom dickens returned in greater force than before to its falsest note fortunately however little dorrit had a selfish sister vulgar ungrateful worldly but not so very bad according to her lights and therefore the novel has a genuine heroine there is uncommon reason as well as logic in the conception of fanny dorrit and in her dickens has come near portraying on a certain low level a real woman a ballet dancer when we first know her in the days when her father seems destined to die in a debtor's prison she lives to be a lady of fashion and wins a high place in the world by those gifts for winning a man with more money than brains which it would be unfit to call arts in fact fanny dorrit for all the blame cast upon her is a very honest creature in her way with a conscience which she keeps clean after a fashion of her own and when the rich mrs myrtle whose weak-witted son by her first husband fanny has captured makes a cogent appeal to her she means to give him up and abide by her bargain the famous scene of their final interview in which she makes little dorrit participate as the representative of her family is as characteristic of dickens's later manner as anything in dickens's work and subordinately it is very characteristic of fanny in our mutual friend there are again two sister heroines but as the better of these is never so insufferably good as dickens's other good girls bella wilfer is a very good heroine she has a most preposterous part to play as the ward of the rich boffin who pretends to be a wicked miser in order to test her and find whether she is a selfish worldling or not and as the beloved of john rokesmith who maintains a long disguise to make sure as the poor secretary of the pseudo bad boffin that she loves him for himself but she remains superior to all this absurdity a charming natural girl not without faults but humaner on account of them and sweeter and dearer at least to the reader her relations to her vixenish sister lavinia to her majestic shrew of a mother and to her poor little persecuted cherub of a father are all 
most amusingly substantialized and if her relations to her lover are left somewhat more shadowy that is because of the utter impossibility of the situation which denies him anything like true character she quarrels with boffin and see and rokesmith mean she shall about his pseudo bad treatment of rokesmith and in leaving the house of her rich protectors to return home with her father she engages herself to marry rokesmith he comes home with her and her father as far as the gate where they are delivered over to mrs wilfer lavinia and her young man george sampson and welcomed with a mystified and icy grandeur to the family supper-table by mrs wilfer who fears that after mr boffin's board a cold neck of mutton and a lettuce will seem meagre fare to bella but bella disperses the mystery and heroically backed by her father tells why she has come home i hope you are not sorry to see me ma dear kissing her and i hope you are not sorry to see me lavvy kissing her too and as i notice the lettuce ma mentioned on the table i'll make the salad bella playfully setting herself about the task mrs wilfer's impressive countenance followed her with glaring eyes presenting a combination of the once popular sign of the saracen's head with a piece of dutch clockwork the cherub not presuming to address so tremendous an object transacted her supper through the agency of a third person as mutton to your ma bella my dear and lavvy i dare say your ma would take some lettuce if you were to put it on her plate mrs wilfer's manner of receiving those viands was marked by petrified absence of mind in which state likewise she partook of them occasionally laying down her knife and fork as saying within her own spirit what is this i am doing and glaring at one or other of the party as if in indignant search of information miss lavinia made a dash at her stately parent now with the greatest impetuosity ma pray don't sit staring at me in that intensely aggravating manner if you see a black on my nose tell me so if you don't leave me alone do you address me in those words said mrs wilfer do you presume don't talk about presuming ma for goodness sake a girl who is old enough to be engaged is quite old enough to object to be stared at as if she was a clock i'm not going to be eyed as if i had come from the boffins and sit silent under it i'm not going to have george sampson eyed as if he had come from the boffins and sit silent under it if pa thinks proper to be eyed as if he had come from the boffins also well and good i don't choose to and i won't lavinia's engineering having made this crooked opening at bella mrs wilfer strode into it you rebellious spirit you mutinous child tell me this lavinia if in violation of your mother's sentiments you had condescended to allow yourself to be patronized by the boffins and if you had come from those halls of slavery that's mere nonsense ma said lavinia how exclaimed mrs wilfer with sublime severity halls of slavery ma is mere stuff and nonsense returned the unmoved irrepressible bella rose and said good-night dear ma i have had a tiring day and i'll go to bed this broke up the agreeable party mrs wilfer washing her hands of the boffins went to bed after the manner of lady macbeth and r w was left alone among the dilapidations of the supper-table in a melancholy attitude 
but a light footstep roused him from his meditations and it was bella's her pretty hair was hanging all about her and she had tripped down softly brush in hand and barefoot to say good-night to him my dear you most unquestionably are a lovely woman said the cherub taking up a tress in his hand look here sir said bella when your lovely woman marries you shall have that piece if you like and she'll make you a chain of it would you prize that remembrance of the dear creature yes my precious then you shall have it if you're good sir i'm sorry very sorry dearest pa to have brought home all this trouble my pet returned her father in the simplest good faith don't make yourself uneasy about that it really is not worth mentioning because things at home would have taken pretty much the same turn anyway if your mother and sister don't find one subject to get at times a little wearing on they find another we're never out of a wearing subject my dear i assure you i'm afraid you find your old room with lavvy dreadfully inconvenient bella no i don't pa i don't mind why don't i mind do you think pa because i'm so thankful and so happy here she choked him until her long hair made him sneeze and then she laughed until she made him laugh and then she choked him again that they might not be overheard listen sir said bella your lovely woman was told her fortune to-night on her way home it won't be a large fortune because if the lovely woman's intended gets a certain appointment that he hopes to get soon she will marry on a hundred and fifty pounds a year but that's at first and even if it should never be more the lovely woman will make it quite enough but that's not all sir in the fortune there's a certain fair man a little man the fortune-teller said who it seems will always find himself near the lovely woman and will always have kept expressly for him such a peaceful corner in the lovely woman's little house as never was dear pa the lovely woman means to look forward to this fortune that has been told for her so delightfully and to cause it to make her a much better lovely woman than she ever has been yet what the little fair man is expected to do sir is to look forward to it also by saying to himself when he is in danger of being overworried i see land at last i see land at last repeated her father there's a dear knave of wilfers exclaimed bella then putting out her small white bare foot that's the mark sir come to the mark put your boot against it we keep to it together mine now sir you may kiss the lovely woman before she runs away so thankful and so happy oh yes fair little man so thankful and so happy it is all of stage quality but it is very sweet as to bella and her father and very amusing as to lavinia and her mother if it were only on the stage as well as of it we should cry out over its truth to nature and as it is why should we quarrel with it we understand the conditions on which dickens was able to work his miracles and it is accurate to say that what he did was largely and loosely inclusive of life rather than exclusive of it the impersonation of a quality or a propensity was misrepresentative only as far as it was single human nature is never single it is warm as well as cold it is light as well as dark it is noble as well as ignoble it is good as well as bad and in view of this fact his one-sided types are not characters but having got this well in mind we can allow for the truth that it is in them and permit ourselves the pleasure they can give without treason to a clearer ideal when now and then as in doris spenlow and yet more distinctly in 
fell wilfer he creates a figure with something like the living woman's moral complexity we have a glimpse of the great possibilities to which a clearer conception of his art would have enlarged him End of section thirteen